I'm Oprah Winfrey. Welcome to Super Soul Conversations, the podcast. I believe that one of the most valuable gifts you can give yourself is time. Taking time to be more fully present. Your journey to become more inspired and connected to the deeper world around us starts right now. I have known Michelle Obama now for 14 years, and during that time, we've done several fascinating interviews together. And let me tell you this, she is everything you think she is, and then some. Today, a new conversation, our first interview since she left the White House. At the Hearst Tower in New York, we sat down with an audience that included a group of girls from a local high school. You know, Michelle and I both love a chance to talk with rising young women. The world has been waiting to read her new memoir, Becoming, and let me tell you, it's worth the wait. I loved it so much, I chose it as my latest book club selection. Michelle writes exquisitely about everything we all wanted to know, from her humble childhood to meeting and being courted by Barack Obama. There are revelations about their marriage and her thoughts on President Trump. When she served our country as the 44th First Lady, she did it with such dignity, grace, and style. Not one scandal, not a misstep. She was the epitome of what a First Lady could be. When you read Becoming, you'll also learn that she's really just like all of us. And at her core, she's still a girl from the south side of Chicago. Please welcome Mrs. Michelle. LaVon Robinson Obama to the stage. Yes, you. Yes. Thank you for this. Hey, guys. How are you guys doing? Look at these ladies. Thank you so much. Ladies, you're going to tell no one where they were today. Yes, you're right. <laughs> Secret. Secret First, as ours. Let me just say, um, I, as you know, I love books. Nothing makes me happier than sitting down with a good read. And so when I started to read this and realized, like, in the preface, what an extraordinary book was forthcoming, I was so proud of you. May I say, you landed it. You landed it. The book is tender, it is compelling, it is powerful, it is raw. And I was struck actually by the beautiful cover, mm. Becoming Michelle Obama, so struck that I have now made it an Oprah's Book Club. And I have Yay. to tell you, I have to tell you, I think this is our 79th book choice. And Lee Haber, who's editor of books, I said, Lee, I love this book so much, but Michelle and I are friends. I don't know, can I do that? How's that gonna look? Yeah, and yeah. She said, <laughs> she said, but do you love the book? I go, I love the book. I love the book so much that I don't just want to choose it as my book club. I want all the book clubs around the world to oh. choose it as their book club so that we're all reading it at the same time. So Reese and Emma and Jimmy Fallon and all of the great book clubs. Why did you choose the word becoming? Because when I was like 18, 19, I wrote this poem, bad poem, yeah. on becoming. Mm -hmm. Because of this notion of evolving. Mm -hmm. And I know you had a choice for multiple titles. Mm. We actually had a, a, a blooper list of titles that we won't go into. Uh -huh. A lot of things that would be funny, only to us. <laughs> um, but becoming just summed it all up. In the preface, you recall one of the things I say that is a question that I 
that adults ask kids that I hate, I think it's the worst question in the world, is what do you want to be when you grow up? As if growing up is finite. Um, as if you become something and that is all there is. And my journey is the journey of always continually evolving. That there is never a point where you arrive at a thing. And if you do, that's kind of sad. You know, if you think that there is a point in your life where you stop growing and stop learning, that's sort of sad because what else is left? You know, I never thought of it that way before until I read that question. So I w I've never asked anybody that since. Mm -hmm. What do you want to be when you grow up? Because yeah. we are, you grow up and you are many different things as you have been many different things. And I don't know what the next step will be. And I tell young people that all the time who are trying to figure it all out because you think at some point you just know that there's gonna be a light that turns off in your 20s or, you know, you pro all young women here probably have some magic age of what number you'll be when you'll feel like a grown-up, you know? And that's generally when you think your mother will stop telling you what to do. <laughs> um, but the truth is, is that for me, each decade has just uncovered Offered. something amazing that I would have never imagined. And it keeps getting better, I have And to if say. I had stopped looking, I would have missed out on, on so much. So I'm still becoming, and I hope all of us know that we are constantly evolving. So this is the story of my journey of becoming, and hopefully it will spark uh, conversations among a lot of people, especially young people, about what their journeys look like. You know, there's so many private revelations in this book that I was surprised by. And I was wondering, was writing about your private life, was that scary? And did you lose sleep about, oh, I'm gonna put that in, no, I'm gonna take that out, no, I'm gonna put that in? Yeah, actually, no. Um, be because here's the thing that I realized, people always ask me, why is it that you're so authentic? Mm -hmm. How is it that people connect to you? And I think it starts because I, I like me. <laughs> <laughs> and I like my story and all the bumps and bruises, the highs and the lows, I'm not afraid of them. I sort of think that that's what makes me uniquely me. So I've always been open um, with my staff, with young people, with my friends. There isn't much people who know me don't know about me because I'm so used to sharing that part of me because I think that even the, the tough spots are important for, for me to examine and explore. So. It wasn't hard. And the other thing, Oprah, that I, I know that whether we like it or not, Barack and I, my husband and I, we are role models. Yep. And, you know, I hate when people who are in the public eye and even seek the public eye want to step back and say, well, I'm not a role model because I don't want that responsibility. Too late, you are. And that means that young people are looking at you. And I don't want young people to look at me here and now as Michelle Obama and think, well, she never had it rough. She never had challenges. She never had fears. She never got... Well, we're not going to think that after reading this book. Oh, no, you're not. No, we're not going to think that at all. <laughs> um, I love the way you divide the sections into becoming, mm -hmm. becoming me, mm -hmm. becoming us, and becoming more. And millions of people have been wondering how you are, how you're doing, how the transition. And I think in your story of becoming, in the very beginning of the book, mm -hmm. that there's no better example of how you are than the toast story. Can you share the toast story? <laughs> it's probably one of the, f the first weeks that we moved into our new home after the transition in our new home in Washington. And we live in a really nice neighborhood, 
let me let me just say this, but it's uh, a couple of miles away from the White House, right down the street from the vice president's res residence. And it's a beautiful brick home. Uh, and you know, you sort of realize this is the first home, regular house with a door and a doorbell <laughs> that I have had in about eight years. years. So the toast story is one of the first nights I was alone by myself with no one there. My kids, the kids were out. Malia was on her gap year. I think Barack was traveling. And I was alone for the first time, which as first lady, you're not alone much because there are people in the house always. There are men standing guard. There uh, is a house full of SWAT people and there, you can't open your windows and you can't walk outside without causing a fuss. You know, I lived in this bubble for eight years and you this can't open a window. Can't open a window. Not without a really big conversation, which, <laughs> which Sasha actually tried to do one day. It was Sasha and Malie, they both, because their rooms face the north side of the White House where all the protesters are. And Malia said, I, I enjoy studying to the sound of the protesters. <laughs> she said, Mom, I've been listening to them, and a couple of them have a few good points. I talked to Dad. But you know, then we got the call, shut the window. Um, so here I am in my new home, and it's just me and Bo and Sonny. And I do a simple thing. I go downstairs and open the cabinet to my own kitchen, which you don't do in the White House, because there's always somebody there going, let me get that. What do you want? What do you need? And I made myself toast. And I made myself cheese toast. And then I took my toast, and I walked out into my backyard. I opened my door, and I stepped outside to fresh air. And I sat on the stoop, and there were dogs barking in the distance. And I realized how Bo and Sonny reacted, because I realized they had really never heard neighbor dogs yeah. either. They thought so they were, they were the only like, dogs in the universe. They were like, oh, what's that? And I was like, <laughs> yep, we're in the real world now, fellas. <laughs> and it's that quiet moment of me settling into this new life, this life, you know, having time to think about what just happened over the last eight years because what I came to realize is that there was absolutely no time to reflect on the eight years we were in the White House. We moved at such a breakneck pace from the moment we yeah. walked into those doors until the moment we left. It was day in and day out because we, Brock and I really felt like we had, had an obligation to get a lot done. So we were busy and we were raising kids and we were dealing with national crises and we were trying to console and we were trying to heal and help. And you know, you'd look up, Monday would happen and I would forget on Tuesday what happened on Monday. Mm -hmm. I forgot whole countries I visited, literally whole countries, but there was no time to reflect. And so this was the moment that I had time to think about these eight years and my journey of becoming. But in reading Becoming, I can see how every single thing, because I do believe this, that everything you're doing right now in your life, in your classroom, is preparing you for the moments and years ahead. And I can That's see if you think about it that way. Yeah. You know, and I really want you girls to understand this. If you view yourself as a serious person in the world, not not having fun, but the truth is every decision that you make really does build to who you are going to become. Yes, and I can see that from you in the first grade, mm -hmm. that you were an achiever, 
with a with with an A plus plus plus. Well, my my mother said I was a little extra. So. <laughs> I was a little extra. Yes, and so you <laughs> write in the book how getting those little gold stars. I don't think you get gold stars anymore, right? No. They don't. They don't even have no. books. I don't okay. know. What do you guys? So, everything's so, on a computer. You get a star on your computer. That that, that you were that those gold stars meant something to you. Yeah, it, I mean, in, in looking back on those stories, I realized there was something about me that understood context yes. and understood even at a young age. And I think this was, I talk a lot about my parents' parenting and how they sort mm -hmm. of gave us the freedom to have a voice and to have thoughts and ideas very early on. And I say this to parents, it's like, you know, giving your, teaching your kids their voice starts the minute they can hear your voice. Uh, and I, my parents took that responsibility pretty seriously. So I was aware of and my surroundings. And they basically let you and Craig figure it out. Oh gosh, yeah, okay. they did. They did sometimes painstakingly so. But you know, what I uh, realized was that achievement mattered and that kids would get tracked early and that if you didn't demonstrate, particularly as a black kid on the South Side from a working class background, people were already ready to put you in a box of underachievement. So for me, even at a very early age, not achieving what I needed to achieve, I didn't want people to think that I wasn't a hardworking kid. I didn't want them to think I was one of those kids because I understood that people do tend to put kids into those kids. These are the bad kids. These are kids that don't want to learn. And what I talk about is the fact that there are no bad kids, there are bad circumstances. And you mentioned this phrase that I like so much. I think it should be, it should be on a t-shirt or something. Uh, failure, you say, is a feeling long before it becomes an actual result. It's a vulnerability that breeds with self-doubt and then is escalated often deliberately by fear. And that this, this idea actually stuck with me, that failure is, is a feeling long before it becomes an actual result. You knew this when? Ooh, first grade. I, I, I could see my neighborhood changing around me. I grew up, um, when we moved to my neighborhood, which was South Shore on the south side of Chicago, it was in the 1970s, way back, a long time ago. <laughs> there was still TV, but only seven channels. <laughs> and when we moved, we moved there and lived with my great aunt in a very little apartment over home she owned because she was a teacher and my uncle, great uncle was a Pullman porter, so they were able to purchase a home yeah. in what was then a predominantly white community. But we came in at the period of transition, uh, which historically has been known as white flight. And one of the things I try to do in my book is put context around my life. So that's not just telling stories, but I want people to understand what was going on politically and socioeconomically. But you do that so that. beautifully. You painted this picture. I, I, I could feel the space. Mm -hmm. There's you in Craig's room, mm -hmm. and then there's the, I, I, the family space. Well, our little, our little play area. Yes. So our apartment was so small that probably what was the living room was divided up into three rooms. Uh, that two rooms were me and my brothers that fit like a twin bed, and it was wood paneling that separated us. And there was no real wall. You could talk right between. It was like, Craig, you up? It's like, I'm up, you up. We would throw a sock over the opening as a, a form of a yeah, game. My I grandfather couldn't figure out where, a, where, did, where did the family actually meet other than the kitchen? Well, there was another room outside that turned into the living room. Um, but our bedroom 
was our two bedrooms and a little play area that became our study. Um, and that house seemed so big when we were little, um, but it was teeny little space. Um, that, and my grandfather, who was a carpenter, my grandfather Southside, who I talk about, was a, was a carpenter who did all the construction that you could imagine in all the houses that everybody owned. But the pictures that you painted so beautifully and becoming is that you all each were a part of a corner of the square mm -hmm. and that your family was the square. Mm -hmm. The four of you together represented yeah. that. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. And I could feel that the, the pizzas and the ice cream that you got after, you know, a great report card, the family sitting at the little table celebrating success. Oh, yeah. We, you know, we lived a humble life, um, but it was a full life. Um, and it, we didn't require much. Um, you know, if you did well, you did well because you wanted to do well. You know, we got a reward, maybe it was pizza, pizza night or some ice cream. That was a, a, a clue from my parents that we had done well. Yeah. But in this neighborhood, I was saying that was changing, that was predominantly white when we moved in. By the time I went to high school, it was predominantly African-American. And in the 70s, there's something known as white flight, where a lot of the white families would move out into the suburbs as black families moved in. And I actually grew up seeing that transition. I put some school pictures, um, class pictures in the book that shows my first grade class and then my eighth grade class that shows that flight happening. And those kids were our, our friends. I mean, I grew up, when I was in kindergarten and first grade, I had friends of all backgrounds. The, my first kiss was a little boy, Teddy Ford, who was Korean American. One of my little friends was a little redhead named Susan and a uh, girl across the street, Rachel. All these kids were in my class. And but by slowly, the time you were in high school. But the flight happened so quickly. Mm -hmm. It was like one, one day they were there, and the and next day gone. the white people were gone. And, and you started to feel the effects in the community and you started to feel it in the school. I felt it as a first grader. I felt the disinvestment. And when we talk about failure as a feeling, this notion that kids don't know when they're not being invested in, yeah. this notion that when kids are in broken schools and in broken communities that they don't know, I'm here to tell you as a first grader, I felt it. But you know, one of the great indications of your personality to come was in the in the first grade. Was it first grade or kindergarten when you when you missed the word? It was kindergarten. It was kindergarten. You missed the you missed a word. Right. Tell us that story. This was sort of like one of your first tests. You were supposed to be able to read your colors. And I came into kindergarten reading, of course. My mother took us to the public I library. I knew how to read. I was a good reader. Um, Spelling was still another thing, and I was still, but the, one of the first things you had to do was do sight readings and read your colors by, you know, red, blue, hold up a card. Mrs. Burles, my kindergarten teacher, still remember her to this day. Um, and it was my turn to get up, and I read the cards red and blue, black, and then I got to white, and I froze. And it was the first time I remember choking, <laughs> because it was a straight-up choke. I mean, I, I knew the word, but... I just couldn't the, the spell w -H, it out. The WH. So I was, whoa, I was whoa. getting there, and then it was like, sit down, and I didn't get my star, and I thought, this, this can't be, because <laughs> I know how to read, and Mrs. Burles is gonna think that I'm one of the kids who can't read, and my two best friends got their stars that day, 
And I went home and I lost sleep over it. I talked to my mom, I said, I don't know what happened, I can read, and I, I mean, I couldn't read the word, and I know the word, and I have to go back and I have to prove myself because I felt like that would be a defining moment for me, that if I was one of the kids who couldn't read the words on the first try, that I'd be... Labeled. I, I'd be labeled. Yeah. So I went back and I argued with Mrs. Burroughs, who had no intention of rereading the words until next week. And I was like, oh no, Mrs. Burroughs. We're doing I this today. To. We're doing this today. <laughs> and I, you know, in, in re recounting that story and thinking about it, great. it's like, well, who was I, this yes. little kindergartner, in to kindergarten. be like, I I'm sorry, Mrs. Burroughs, I know we we're supposed to have playtime, but I need to redo my words today. And she, and I convinced her to let me do it and pity the kids who had to sit there while I read those cards, but I got my star. And I was like, okay, life can go on. <laughs> but that was very much me. And my mom will tell you this. It was like, she doesn't even know where that came from. Um, I think she had way more to do with who I was than she gives I herself so credit too. for. I think so too, because you say our parents invested in us. Mm. You know, they didn't own their own home. They invested. They didn't vacation. They didn't go. They invested mom, everything in you. My mom didn't go to the hairdresser. She did her own nails. I talk about one time when she turned her hair green, and it was like, Mom, all right, you can't do this. You can, you can go, go, go to, to the, the hairdresser. hairdresser. Yeah. She didn't buy herself new clothes. She stayed home. She made sacrifices for us. My father was a shift worker. You know, I could see my parents sacrificing for us. It was apparent. Did you know clear. at the time it was sacrifice? Maybe I wouldn't call it sacrifice at the time, and our parents didn't guilt trip us, but I had eyes, you know. I, I saw my father going to work in that uniform every day. Um, Your family did the same thing my family did. Your father had an electric 225, so did my father have an electric 225. Deuce and a quarter. Deuce and a quarter. There's a whole section on the deuce and a quarter. Deuce and a quarter. And driving around, looking at homes on the yeah. on the weekend, yeah, looking we at how other people Yeah, we had our little aspirational live. moments where we'd get in the deuce and a quarter and we'd drive to the nicer neighborhoods and we'd look at the homes that had beautifully lined flowers and two cars in the driveway. I talk about a time when we visited one of our, the, the, the families who fled out and we had an experience of visiting one of our friends' families in a suburb, and it wasn't a positive experience um, yes, when you leaving out. our neighborhood. But the deuce in the quarter for my father uh, represents more than just a car because my father was disabled. He had uh, MS, and he had trouble walking for quite some time. And this is more reflective, knowing, now looking back, I could see how much this car meant to him because this car was his wings. Yes. It gave him the ability to take us around in a way that he couldn't walk us around. So there was power in that car. That, that car was a metaphor for, I mean, they call it a little capsule yeah. that my, my, my family, we would be in and we could see the world in yeah, a way that Like windows of the world. You know the thing I was most, one of the things I was most impressed with because I, I genuinely appreciated the way you were able to reveal so much of not just what happened to your family, but what's going on with all families. You know, we often talk about how systemic racism impacts generations, the way you write about your grandfather mm -hmm. for me. Which one? Because what, uh, I had was I the perfect up, way to was explain. fortunate to grow up with two of them. Yeah, it wasn't Southside. Okay, Dandy. Okay. Dandy, okay. Uh, you write on page 38, I thought this was so beautiful, gradually, he downgraded his hopes 
letting go of the idea of college, thinking he trained to become an electrician instead. But this too was quickly thwarted. If you wanted to work as an electrician or as a steel worker, a carpenter or a plumber for that matter, on any of the big job sites in Chicago, you needed a union card. And if you were black, the overwhelming odds were that you weren't gonna get one. Discrimination altered the destinies of generations of African Americans, including many of the men in my family, limiting their income, their opportunity, and eventually their aspirations. First of all, I don't think I've ever heard a more gut-wrenching truth explained in such simple human terms. And did your parents sit you and Craig down at some point and explain that the world isn't always fair? Oh yeah, we, we would have conversations all the time. I mean, and, and that section, I talk about my uh, paternal grandfather, we called him Dandy. My whole family, by the way, we lived within a five block radius and I lived downstairs from a great aunt. My mother's father lived two blocks away with aunts and uncles. My father's parents lived maybe five minutes away. Um, and that's how you grew up on the south side of Chicago. You grew up with your the family right there. The piano. great great aunt who taught me to play the piano, Robbie, she's one of the first stories. She was one of my first adversaries, the one of the people who kicked me in the butt a little bit at the age of four when I thought I would be a great pianist and she just didn't appreciate it. But um, but I talk about D Dandy, my, my paternal grandfather, who, again, we would go visit Dandy and Grandma every Sunday. That was part of the ritual. You know, we had dinner at my, my father's parents' house. So we had a lot of traditions and routines in our little poor little way. They weren't grand, you but were they the were just... the cleavers, though. We you were, were the poor, the and, and Barack has always called us the cleavers, uh, without the picket fence and the father with the suit, and said my father had a blue uniform. Um, but it was a very, you know, it was a very tight-knit situation. But Dandy, and I wouldn't notice, was a very grumpy man. Uh, he was angry and bitter in ways that were unexplainable. And a lot of times he would take that anger out on my grandmother, not in a physical way, but just in a grumpy, cranky kind of way. And I always, at a very young age, I was always amazed at how other adults kind of sat by and didn't intervene. Oh, but not Michelle, you know? <laughs> I was the one who was gonna be like, Dandy, you need to stop. I don't know why you're yelling and you sit down and I don't, and he would let me, because I'm sure I was about this big and probably cute and having somebody come up and stop yelling, probably amused him at yes. some level. Um, but my parents would explain to us. We would leave a family gathering and they'd say, well, let me tell you a little bit about why Dandy might be upset. Um, because Dandy was a brilliant man, uh, grew up in South Carolina in the South, and he was one of the, the many millions of black folks who migrated north in hopes of getting jobs but couldn't get a job. Uh, he was smart. He should have gone to college. He probably should have been a professor. But that was the plight of black men and still is today yes. in, in, in a culture of racism and inequality where a lot of people don't get the opportunity even if they have the skill. And what my parents helped me to realize is that there's something that happens to a, a man, a person, who knows deep inside that they are more than what their opportunities allow them to be. Mm -hmm. And for, my, for, for Dandy, it bubbled up in a discontent that he couldn't shake. 
And I was taught to understand this about my grandfather very early on so that I could have the compassion and the empathy for him. Because as I said, what's important in this book is context. And I try to put context in this book because everybody's life has context. There's context. You can't judge somebody or know somebody just based on their actions. You have to know the full breadth of their experiences. And what my I got, parents taught me that. What I got from it is whether it was Robbie downstairs mm -hmm. or Dandy or many other people that you mentioned in the book, that a lot of people are carrying their own broken dreams. Absolutely. And when people are carrying their broken dreams, you have to make room for their broken dreams. But I thought, you know, so often you get in conversations, particularly with white people who have said to me when I was doing shows on racism, like, that was then, what do we have to do with slavery? I'm, I wasn't there then. Your explanation of what happens to a family that isn't allowed to have the opportunities, I think, is, you know, puts and it in context. And I just think of what networking opportunities, what additional information, what exposure I missed because my grandfathers didn't have the opportunity. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and still, here I am. And this is one of the things I want, why I want people to know the rawness of my story, especially young girls, is because I was that kid that didn't have networks, didn't have grandfathers with trust funds and big fancy names. And that doesn't define who you are. It didn't define them. Sadly, they didn't know that. They didn't have the, the opportunity, the love, and the support that I had. That's what they, they blessed That's why they were working so hard to make sure you had it. That's why they worked so hard to change our lot. And that's one thing I understood, that when I saw my grandparents and heard their sacrifice, my notion was, oh, little girl, you better get that star. <laughs> yeah. Because they're counting on you to get that star. Yeah. It's what Maya Angelou used to say, you've been paid for. Yeah. You've been absolutely. paid for. And then when you were 10 years old, you had this experience, Gail and I talk about this too, you had this experience where a cousin, oh, yeah. a cousin, a distant relative says to you, how come you talk like a white girl? Oh yeah. Yeah. Talking like a white girl. <laughs> Which is something that a lot of white people are like, what, what do you mean? Yeah. <laughs> what does that sound like? Yeah. Look at the girls looking. Anybody heard that before? Anybody say you talk Why like you a talk white like girl? A white Why girl? you talking like a white girl? And I talk about that incident as as one of the challenges that you have as a striving kid in you know, now I grew up in a black community, but the truth is that if you grow up in a community other than the one that you're striving if you're moving away from that community, sometimes there's a pullback where folks don't understand yeah. like where do you think you're going? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, is essentially the question, are? who do you think you are? Mm -hmm. And I confronted that question early and often. And it was disconcerting at 10 because you're trying to be just a regular 10-year-old kid. You don't want to be the kid at the family barbecue that's that kid talking all white, talking all white you know? Uh, so in many ways, when you grew up, or at least when I grew up, I had to learn how to be bilingual. I had to learn how to talk in a way that would get me to school without getting my butt kicked. <laughs> yeah. And I had to talk in a certain way that it would allow me to continue to strive and get those gold stars and to you know, push towards what my, my parents uh, and grandparents had hoped for me. Because also, the way I talked was something that was drilled into me by Dandy. Dandy was the one who was like, we talk proper English in this house. You couldn't walk into that house, you know, sl slipping and sliding and slurring and done, you know, 
I, he, he was such a force intellectually um, that he shaped us into who we had to be as intellectuals. And later, when Barack Obama entered the public stage, you say you watched the same sentiment oh, play yeah. out with him. Oh, but why yeah. you talk like that? Yeah. And so why yeah. not black and, and, enough? And knowing black that enough. that always comes, that with any black person that you see striving and excelling and understanding that context, or any person from an underserved experience, there is always that pull of pulling away from who you were. You know, I talk about the fact that in Barack's first congressional race, which was a sad, sad disappointment to me, he was running against Bobby Rush. All of these folks have known us for quite some time. And the biggest criticism they had of Barack, who was a state senator at the time, that he was this Harvard-trained know-it-all trying to come in and blah dee da dee da yeah. I mean, their major attack was him that he was too smart, he was too educated, that we couldn't trust him. And that, that, those kind of attacks, worse than anything anybody from any other party or any other has said about me, to have your own community <laughs> tell you that you aren't black enough, that you aren't good enough, that you don't fit in, um, is probably one of the most hurtful things you can do, especially as a young person, when in your mind, you were doing exactly what you thought the community wanted you to do. Right. Excel, achieve. Strive. And, then, and serve. Yes. So I put that out there because it's an important thing for communities of, of color to think about. You know, it's one thing to compete. All the girls are nodding their heads because they know. This is a, the life. I, this is why I'm saying these are smart I, I girls am you. You've heard that, I, right? Heard it in your own families, maybe in your own, in your own houses. It is something that we all deal with. And it's important for the rest of the world to understand this as they understand the challenges, the, the potential anger, the disappointment that comes in this country when you are striving against who you are supposed to be and who, where you come from and all those identities getting mushed up together. And trying to navigate it trying all. Trying to navigate it all and, and doing it throughout your entire life. My big concern was being able to talk about everything I wanted to talk about. Right, right. So, okay. We're going to keep it going. Keep it moving. After it's a high big school, book. It's a big book. <laughs> right. uh, after high school, and I was sorry when it ended, actually. After high school, you went to Princeton, then Harvard Law School, and then you joined this prestigious law firm yes. in Chicago. Now, this, when I read this, I put three circles around it, two stars, <laughs> and I went, oh, my God. You write on page 132, I hated being a lawyer. Oh, God, yeah. I wanted a life. Sorry, lawyers. I wanted a life. <laughs> I wanted to feel whole. So I wanted to shout that from the mountaintops because I know, I thought so many people are going to read this who are in jobs that they hate, but they feel like they have to continue. And I was wondering for you, your parents have invested everything. You've led us through everything they've given up, they've sacrificed. How did you come to that decision? Did it happen all at once? Do you go to work or do you start feeling it and then just one day say, I hate being a lawyer? It, it took a lot to get to that point to be able to say that to myself. Yes. Out loud to myself because I still couldn't say it to the world. But in the book, I take you on the journey of who that little girl, the striving star getter yeah. became, which was what a lot of many hard driving uh, kids become, I became a box checker. I became someone who understood that there was a payoff for effort 
and I enjoyed that. Just like, you know, what do you want to be when you grow up? I want to be a lawyer. Well, that sounds good. And I responded to the reaction that I got without thinking about who I was and even knowing that I had the right to think about it. So I went through much of my life until I became a lawyer checking boxes. Get good grades, I can do that, check. Um, go apply to the best schools in the country, get into Princeton, check. Get there, what's your major? Uh, let me do something that's gonna get me good grades so I can get into law school, I guess. Did it, check. Got through law school, check. I was checking boxes and not thinking about who I was gonna be. And in the book, I talk about some of the things that made me wake up because I wasn't a swerver. I wasn't somebody that was gonna take risks. Um, I became risk averse in all this talent and all this opportunity. I narrowed myself to being this thing I thought I should be. And it took loss. Um, I talk about losses that I had in my life that made me think, have you ever stopped to think about who you wanted to be? And I realized that I had not. But where was I? I was sitting on the 47th floor of a high-rise office building, going over uh, cases and writing memos, and I just landed there. It was almost like I got plucked out and I was there and I had nothing to do with it. What I loved about it is it says to every person reading the book and, and beyond that you have the right to change your mind. You have the right to change your mind. Oh, gosh, yeah. You have because the right to change your mind. Here's the thing, because when you're becoming and you're always becoming, these little moments, this is just a part of the story. So I had to tell myself, even though I'd invested a lot of money and time in becoming a lawyer, that's okay. That was worth it. That were was you afraid though that you were, were you I afraid? I was scared to death. Okay. Because my mother, who was not very, she didn't comment on the choices that we made. She was just like, live and let live. You've got to make your choices. But I, there's a scene where I'm really struggling with it, and I finally share with her that I'm not happy and passionate. And for the first time, my mother's driving me from the airport after I was doing document production in Washington, D.C. And I, by then, I was like, I can't do this for the rest of my life. I can't sit in a room and look at documents. I won't get into what that is for the young people, but it's deadly. It's deadly boring <laughs> document production. And I shared with her in the car that I'm just not happy and I, I don't feel my passion. And my mother, my uninvolved, live and let live mother said, Make the money, worry about being happy later. And I was like, <laughs> and I was like, oh, okay. But then I, in the book, I talk about how, wow, how indulgent that must have felt to my mother. Yes. To hear me talking about passion and yes. what I cared about when she had sacrificed and my parents had sacrificed. They didn't put it like that. And I don't think she was thinking about it in those terms, but when she said that, I thought, wow, what, where did I come from with all my luxury and wanting my passion? The luxury to even be able to decide. The luxury to even be able to decide where my mother didn't get to go back to work and start even finding herself until after she got us into high school, she made that sacrifice. So yes, it was hard. And I felt guilty, and I started writing a journal, and then I met this guy, Barack, Barack Obama. Obama. He was also part of the shaking up my little ch box checking world, because he was the opposite of a box checker. 
he was swerving all over the place. I didn't even know. It's like, how did you get here? And you didn't do, what did you do that? He was doing the opposite of what I was doing in my life. You write about meeting him. I had constructed my existence carefully tucking and folding every loose and disorderly bit of it, as if building some tight and airless piece of origami. Barack was like a wind that threatened to unsettle everything. At first, she didn't like being unsettled. Oh, God, no, no, unsettled. That was a lack of control, you know? Barack and other people slowly taught me to unwind a little bit, that part of what you earn, part of this work of becoming and making the sacrifices is that you can, you can try some things. You can step outside the box and things won't fall apart. But when you're a little kid from the south side of Chicago and every dime matters and, you know, you can be categorized and dropped and you can lose opportunities, I felt like I didn't have the luxury. Our conversation will continue in the next episode. You can listen by downloading part two. I'm Oprah Winfrey, and you've been listening to Super Soul Conversations, the podcast. You can follow Super Soul on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. If you haven't yet, go to Apple Podcasts and subscribe, rate, and review this podcast. Join me next week for another Super Soul Conversation. Thank you for listening. <laughs>